you would turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. I want to draw attention to the last few verses in this chapter. We're not going to stay here, but I wanted to draw attention to these verses. We read through this passage uh, just a little bit ago, and we noted we were reading through together the preaching of the gospel through Jesus Christ, the good news that, of course, he came and laid down his life by being hung upon a cross and God raising him from the dead. There are witnesses, including Peter, and the other apostles who testified to his resurrection. And then Peter gives direction in verse 42, or gives insight into part of the gospel message that was to be proclaimed, not only Jesus being Lord and Savior, but eventually judge of all, the living and the dead, verse 42 And what a promise in verse 43 of him, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. And if you have received forgiveness of sins through faith in Christ today, that brings joy. What God was doing here in Acts chapter 10 and 11 is he was bringing new life to Gentiles. Certainly there are other Gentiles who were saved in the course of history prior to this, but in terms of the church, this is a development. What God has done prior to this in the book of Acts is he has saved many, many Jews in Jerusalem and beyond. He has saved many Samaritans, but now the gospel is spread to the Gentiles. And Peter, as he preaches, even while he's preaching, verse 44 says, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who were listening. The word there is hearing the message, not just those who were having the words pass into their ears, but they were actually hearing, understanding. God was giving them understanding. The Holy Spirit falls upon them. And then those who came with Peter, verse 45, it says, all the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. So there's a step forward in terms of the people. And then God is leading the way, you might say, by saving these individuals who are gathered here on this occasion and giving evidence to Peter by the Spirit coming upon them. And here's the evidence, verse 46, for they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. And in the book of Acts, you can see in other times that this is the demonstration of the Spirit's presence. I don't believe that the Lord does the same thing for those who come to faith today. But in this transitional time, this was one way in which Peter was able to see, as well as the other apostles were able to see, that God was working and especially here for Gentiles. And so Peter argues in verse 46 and 47 for the baptism of these individuals who had come to faith in Christ. He argues for water baptism. 
And he says, surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did. Can he? In other words, there's evidence here of new life. There's evidence that the Spirit has come in to dwell and he's working in this group of people. And then sort of a strong statement as we look at the book of Acts, in verse 48, it says he ordered them, literally commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. So this is a command that Peter gives in light of the fact that there's new life. There's believing people who are listening to his message, and though they be Gentiles which you can see if you read through the next chapter, that became an issue for others who, looking on, thought, not so sure about this. But Peter explained that what is happening here is consistent with what happened even with him at the beginning in the book of Acts and others, that they had believed. And upon belief, there was to be baptism. And so the order was, the command was that these be baptized, notice, in the name of Jesus Christ. And so, as we look at the end of this chapter and assume that what Peter ordered actually happened, you can read through the next chapter, perhaps sometime today, but as you think about what God is doing here, yes, he's expanding the message to a new group of people, but there's something here that we would say is consistent with every profession of faith, every true profession of faith, every person who believes in this time and age needs to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. I want to take a little time to consider the subject of Christian baptism. This is one instance of it in the book of Acts. There's actually a precursor that I want to take a little time to consider, and then we'll look at other instances in the book of Acts to see what it looks like in the book of Acts when people were baptized. So if you were going to look at baptism before the book of Acts, where would you go? And I think most of us would say, well, isn't there this guy named John the Baptist? And yes, there was, John the Baptist. Remember John? Turn to Matthew chapter 3. Just briefly look at the precursor to Christian baptism. We're introduced to John in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 1. Now, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now, John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem was going out to him, and all Judea and all the district around Jordan, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. And so we have in the Gospels, before Jesus was baptizing, before even Jesus is baptized, you have John baptizing people who were coming and confessing their sins. And as John confronts the Pharisees and the Sadducees who also came to him. He was questioning whether or not they truly were repentant because his baptism was a baptism of repentance. He called them, verse 8, to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. 
He warned them of the danger of not repenting, and he also prophesied of one who would come after him. So if you look at verse 11, he says, As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, or as a symbol of repentance, I think is the idea. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I'm not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. He will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. John, of course, is calling people to repentance in light of God's word, and certainly the law of God. The repentance was a turning from transgression of the law to obedience to the law, but certainly to faith in God. And very specifically to faith in the one that he was preaching about who would come after him. And there appears, if you study the Gospels, a, a period of time where John did not know or understand who Jesus was, but he comes to realize who Jesus was even as he's baptizing. We'll look at that in a little bit. But I think what we can understand from what I would call the precursor to Christian baptism here is that John did baptize. John's baptism included all of the Jews, all of the people, including, as he addresses in verse 7, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. If we understand what John was doing, he was basically saying, everybody needs this cleansing. Just because you're a child of Abraham doesn't mean that you don't need this cleansing. And this is unusual because during this time, the people surrounding John in the Jewish nation thought, of course, they're the chosen nation. They're Abraham's children. The only people who would need baptism are sinners from outside, the Gentiles. And there was a practice of what you would call proselyte baptism, where someone would go through a ritual you would call purification as they came, became a part of uh, I'll say biblical religion or Jewish religion, the teaching of Scripture following Yahweh. So baptism is already a practice. But John very specifically says in John chapter 1 that God sent him to baptize. And as he came to baptize, he wasn't baptizing only Gentiles from without, but he's actually calling Jews who are within and saying they needed to be baptized too. And they really did need to bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. That's why he warns the Pharisees and the Sadducees. This isn't just a ritual. This needs to be genuine repentance. As you study the teaching of John, he was giving instructions to soldiers, to tax collectors, and others as to how to show forth works of repentance. What does a repentant life look like? He was having to explain to them, this is what it looks like. And I'll leave that to you to see how he explained that to them. But, but basically what he's saying, there's a changed life for those who put their faith in God. There's a changed life for those who say that they are truly repentant. And of course, in this passage, and we can see in others as well, John is not only calling people to repentance, he's preparing people to meet the Lord. He's preparing people to meet the one who he says in verse 11 is mightier than me. I'm not fit to remove his sandals. The one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit and fire. So John's 
baptizing to a certain extent was like those Old Testament prophets who sometimes had a a symbol or something that they did or something along with their prophecy that testified to some truth. And you can read through Ezekiel or Jeremiah, and at different times, there was something that they did as a picture to people, as a picture of what God was going to do. In the case of John the Baptist here, the last Old Testament prophet, he's baptizing, and he's really foretelling someone who's coming to baptize. And of course, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. If you turn over to John chapter 1, this is where John starts to specify Jesus very specifically as the one who is coming after him. The question in verse 19 comes to John, who are you? Who are you? Verse 20, and he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ, or I am not the Messiah. They asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Then they said to him, who are you, so that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? He said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah the prophet said. Now that tells us, if we were to study the forerunner to the Messiah, that this is what John was doing. He was coming to prepare the way of the Lord by his preaching and calling people to faith, calling people to repentance so that they would be ready when the Lord came. Look at verse 24. Now when now they had been sent from the Pharisees, they asked him and said to him, why are you uh, baptizing if you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them saying, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. So why is John baptizing? Let's keep on reading because he explains it. He is baptizing in water, he has said, but there's someone who stands among you who you don't know. Lay it back in the book of Matthew, we learned that he is baptizing in water, but there's someone who will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Verse 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, after me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. So God actually is sending him to baptize, in part to call people to repentance, to prepare the way of the Lord, but also so that this one, who is the Spirit baptizer, would be manifest or made known to Israel. Verse 32, John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, he upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. You see what's happening? God is giving John an understanding of who the Messiah is by his baptism, by the Spirit coming down and resting upon Christ. And as John 
testifies, look at verse 34, I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. This is the one whom God had anointed. So John's baptism was meant in part, of course, to call people to repentance. It was certainly meant to, to, to challenge them to consider their lives in relation to God's word and to turn from their sin and turn to faith in God. But as John pointed people to God, he specifically now is pointing to the Son of God who reveals God in the flesh. This is one of those chapters in the Scripture that I think is full of Christ. Certainly it is in the prologue in the early part of the chapter, but even later in the chapter, Jesus is identified as the Lamb of God. He's identified as the Son of God. Later in John, he's identified as the Bridegroom. This is the Messiah. This is John chapter 4, the Savior of the world. This is the one in whom you are to place your trust for the forgiveness of sins. That's how forgiveness of sins is given. It's not through any ritual. It's certainly not through baptism. It is through faith in Jesus Christ. If you turn over to chapter 4 for a moment, and then we're going to move into the book of Acts. Chapter 4 tells us that John was baptizing, but Jesus is also baptizing. Jesus has begun his ministry after his baptism, ministry of miracles, certainly his ministry of preaching the gospel himself. Nicodemus is... Uh, he speaks to Nicodemus in chapter 3, but in chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee. So not only is John baptizing, but Jesus is baptizing. But John gives the explanation though Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were. So Jesus is now baptizing. John has been baptizing. Jesus is now baptizing. You might ask the question, why is Jesus baptizing? Or why are his disciples baptizing? Well, baptism here, again, if they're following the teaching of John, then baptism really is a sign of repentance. And Jesus' disciples were also calling people to repentance, to turn from their sins, to put their faith in God, but now the object of faith has come. Christ himself is here. And even John was pointing his disciples to Jesus. So now those who are being baptized are being baptized in Jesus' name. They're following Jesus. And insofar as I can tell, based on my reading of the Gospels and even the book of Acts, it seems that it's at this time that Jesus' disciples themselves are baptized. The apostles were baptized. You don't see that in Scripture. But there's now a the Messiah is present, and there are disciples being made. And though they do not, they do not understand fully the, the, the full outworking of what Jesus was going to do. They're following Jesus. He's the object of their faith, they're putting their trust in him, and they're his disciples. And then if you read through, of course, the gospel, even the book of John, you see 
the great witness to the reality that he is the Son of God. The miracles that he proclaimed, the words that he gave that were from God, and then, of course, his sacrifice upon the cross as he came to the place where he died upon the cross and rose again. The gospel message, every single one of the gospels really lead up to that point where Jesus lays down his life as an offering for sins, as a sacrifice for sins. And then he rises again. And if you turn back to Matthew chapter 28, following his resurrection, as he appears to his apostles, his disciples, he gives what we could call the mandate or the commission to the church. In verse 16, it says the 11 disciples, Matthew 28, proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So we looked at really the precursor, which is John's baptism, which is not, I think you could say this is a transition time. It's not Christian baptism, although John is pointing people to Jesus. But now, very clearly, Jesus is calling and telling his disciples to make disciples of all the nations and that they are to be baptized. You can see the Great Commission in the other Gospels as well, but here we have the ordination or the ordaining of baptism by Christ as he has risen from the dead. And so as his disciples go forth to make disciples, the first act of obedience, I believe based on this passage and the other passages we'll see in Acts, the first act of obedience is to be baptized in Jesus' name. Or here, of course, it's to be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Turn, if you would, to Acts chapter 2, we have been through, we've been going through the book of Acts as a church on Sunday mornings, other than the days we observe the Lord's table, considering passages in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, as Peter has preached the same message of the gospel, he preached later to the, to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10, he has preached that message down through verse 36. I'll read verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And those who had gathered there on the day of Pentecost, it says, now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. In many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Now notice this, verse 41. So then those who had received his word, what word? The word of the gospel, the good news about Jesus, the lordship of Christ, the fact that he's the Messiah, those who had received his word, that's faith, were baptized. They made public proclamation to their faith in Christ by baptism. 
In verse 41 goes on to say that day there were added about 3,000 souls. So you have the 120 who were there, but now the gospel is being preached and there are 3,000 that come to Christ that day. And you might say, well, how did they manage that baptism? I mean, we have a few today comparatively, but 3,000? And some actually suggest they made a run to the Jordan River. I mean, that's where Jesus was baptized. That's sometimes the argument. But I don't think even based on archaeology that would be necessary. If you look at Jerusalem, it had many pools. And even leading up to, they found at the Temple Mount, they found evidence of pools, pools that the Jews would have used for purification as they went to the Temple. So in God's sovereign providence and preparation, there was plenty of water. Wouldn't have had to make a run to the Jordan. And these 3,000 could be baptized upon profession of faith in Christ there in Jerusalem, whether the pool of Siloam or the pool of Bethesda or whatever place, they could have been baptized without making a run to the Jordan. Notice at the end of this chapter, what takes place. Verse 46, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, if we read Acts chapter 2 and we read the other passages in the book of Acts, I think the implication of a passage that records conversion like that, we can assume, even if it's not mentioned, that baptisms are taking place, that someone comes to faith in Christ and the outward proclamation is in baptism. But we're not left to imagine all the time because the scriptures, of course, give us detail. You go through the early chapters in the book of Acts and there are other, you might say, mass conversions, many, many people coming to faith in Christ. But as we see the gospel move forward, turn over to Acts chapter 8. We're not going to take long here. We've been through this chapter very recently. Baptism is part of the story here in Acts chapter 8 as Philip goes and preaches the gospel to the people of Samaria. Verse 5 says, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. People gave attention to him, verse 6, and all the miracles that were taking place. We're not going to take time to consider Simon. We have considered Simon. But verse 12 says, But when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. Tells us more about Simon's interaction there. But the point here is that the Samaritans too, it wasn't just for the Jews. Now the Samaritans, this kind of bridge group of people who were not fully Jews, they were not fully Gentiles, they followed some of the teaching of the law, but they're coming to faith also in Jesus Christ, and they're immediately being baptized. And then later in the chapter, which we just considered last time we were in the book of Acts, is this Ethiopian. And as the story goes, Philip is removed from the Samaritans by God's direction. He goes to this desert road. He runs up next to the chariot, verse 30, and asks the Ethiopian, do you understand what you're reading? The Ethiopian requires or asks for some help, reads him a portion of Isaiah, 
And Philip, as he hears the question, verse 35, it says, Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from the Scripture, he preached Jesus to him. And as they went along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And if you read through this section about the Ethiopian eunuch, you might ask the question, where did this come from? Because baptism's not in Isaiah, right? There's nothing about baptism in Isaiah 53. No, this is Philip preaching the gospel. And just as he had in Samaria, he now gives him the implications of the gospel message. What's the implication of the gospel message? That you must put your faith in Jesus Christ, who is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. And as you publicly proclaim your faith in Jesus and you're confessing him as Lord, the way you do that is an outward sign, is in baptism. In other words, faith in the heart is what is essential, but as you proclaim that to the world, that's, that's baptism. That's why I believe he asked the question. In verse 38, he says he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water. One commentary made the point, apparently there wasn't enough water in the chariot. Right? I mean, they may have had water to drink, but there wasn't enough water for baptism. Baptism required that they go down into the water, and I think that's an appropriate way to see what's taking place here, because he was baptized, as in other places, as there's a lot of water back when John was even baptizing, and that's why he was baptizing, because there was much water in this one particular place. It was because baptism was by immersion. He went down into the water, Philip, as well as the eunuch, verse 38, and he baptized him. And then the Lord had other plans for Philip, certainly other plans for the eunuch. You may not have to turn to the page, but we have a pretty dramatic baptism in Acts chapter 9. What's the drama in Acts chapter 9? Well, you have an enemy of Christ, someone who is outspoken and actually violent, arrogant, an aggressor against Christians. In fact, the first verse introduces him as Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and asked for the letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found anyone, any belonging to the way, that would be the Christian way, the way of Christ, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So what takes place here in Acts chapter 9 is here's a man who is the enemy of Christ, who's opposing Christ, who's actually having put, uh, Christians put in jail. He's giving his voice against Christians as they're being put to death. And Christ himself on the road to Damascus confronts him. And this is a wonderful text because it shows the glory of Christ and his love for his people. Verse 3 as he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Think about this. Here's a man who with full energy and you might say the command of authority is heading to persecute Christians, to bring them back to Jerusalem. But now, look at what it says happened. He got up from the, from the ground, verse 8, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. 
and leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And for three days, he's without sight and he's not eating or drinking. And what is he thinking? I mean, what a dramatic thing to be confronted with the Lord himself in his glory, brighter than the sun itself, he says in one passage. Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus. Talk about a profound shift in his thinking. To now come to understand that, that his persecution of Christians is completely wrong. He's been wrong about everything when it comes to Jesus. And now he's blinded, humbled, having to be led about by the hand. His world is turned upside down, and he is led to a household, house of Judas. Verse 11 tells us that he's there. The Lord appears to Ananias in a vision and tells him to go to that place. And notice why he tells him to do that. Look at the end of verse 11. We'll read all verse 11. It says, The Lord said to him, Get up and go into the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. He's now praying. That's an act of faith. And certainly, in terms of his experience on the road to Damascus, I mean, he asks, who are you, Lord? But we don't really hear much more from Paul as Jesus introduces himself. But now, after three days, Ananias is to go. And why is he to go? In part, because Saul is praying and he's also seen a vision. Verse 12, he's seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Now, that would have been something for Ananias to do, to go to this one who was an enemy, but now by God's grace and the mercy of Christ, God is transforming this man. And I've studied the life of the apostle, especially his conversion, and tried to say, well, when exactly is he converted? When exactly does this take place? When does he place his faith? Is it when he says, who are you, Lord? Is it when he's praying? Is it when he sees the vision? Or is it when he's actually brought to sight again and gets up, verse 18, and is baptized? And you ask that question and you explore different passages. The one passage I draw attention to is Acts chapter 22. to get some more insight, because Paul gives his testimony of how he came to Christ. He tells us about that scene with Ananias. Verse 12, a certain Ananias, a man who is devout by the standard of the law and well spoken of by all the Jews who live there, came to me and standing near me said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. Was it there? He called him brother. I mean, brother implies a family relationship within the family of God. Is Ananias, I mean, Ananias, based on the, the vision, would have certainly said this man is chosen by Christ. He's a brother. He says brother Saul. Could be a 
here's the thing that sets us back a little bit, is it could be a countryman brother. Brother Saul, receive your sight, verse 13. And at that very time, I looked up at him. Is there faith in the reception of sight? Believing the words? Look at verse 14. And he said, the God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear an utterance from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to all men of what you have seen and heard. Now, why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Okay, so you're, if you're thinking about what, what does it mean to be a Christian, you would say it means that you have to call on the name of the Lord. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that's the Bible truth. Apart from baptism, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Why are you then baptized? Well, the, the verse itself seems to raise a question, doesn't it? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins? Is that how a person's sins are washed away? Well, if you compare Scripture with Scripture, no, that's not how sins are washed away. Sins are washed away by the mercy and grace of God, by means of the blood of Christ. The baptism is an outward proclamation of what has taken place in the life. Is there meant to be an allusion there to the washing away of sins in the picture of baptism, perhaps? But he is not saying, get up and get wet and wash away your sins. That's not what does it. It's the calling on God's name. That's the promise that Paul himself wrote in Romans chapter 10, in keeping with an Old Testament promise that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You'll be safe. You'll have your sins forgiven. By the way, I could be speaking to someone today. You came here maybe to observe someone to be baptized, or maybe you come on a regular basis and weren't expecting even what we're doing today, but I just want to call you to what the Scripture teaches about how you can come to faith in Jesus Christ. You need to believe the gospel, the truth about who Jesus is, that he is indeed the Son of God, God in the flesh, that he came to this world, that he died on the cross for sinners, that he rose again, and through his sacrifice, his substitutionary sacrifice in my place, my debt towards God is paid for. My sins are paid for. And as I trust in that, as I rest in that, I believe in Jesus Christ and what he's done for me. And I confess Jesus is Lord. Paul says in Romans 10, that's what brings salvation. There's something that takes place in the heart. There's something that takes place with the mouth. The confession is made to salvation. Jesus is Lord. But what's essential is it takes place, of course, in the heart. Baptism is just that outward picture. When was Paul saved? Well, I do believe there are evidences of faith, but when did he publicly proclaim his allegiance to Jesus, his submission to the lordship of Jesus? It was when he was baptized. 
This was his public proclamation to the world that now he's become a follower of Jesus. And what a change. What a change there should be for anyone. What a change there was in this man's life. From an enemy of God, persecuting the church of God now, and you just read the rest of Acts chapter 9, you find that he is now preaching Christ, proclaiming Jesus. And that's what God does in the heart by his grace when he brings someone to himself. They turn from darkness to light. And what had to happen? Well, God had to shine the light of the gospel into Paul's heart to give him the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in Jesus Christ. And upon obtaining that light and knowledge, he had to respond by faith and trust in Christ and confess that indeed Jesus is Lord. Now, we don't have time to go through every single instance in the book of Acts. We already looked at Acts chapter 10. Let's just look over to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. Paul is on a journey. missionary journey. Verse 12, 13, it says, Acts 16, 13, on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were uh, supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God. This tells us that she along with these other who had gathered for prayer, was actually someone who had, I believe, become a God-fearer, did not yet know who Jesus Christ was, but Paul came preaching Christ. But it says in verse 14 that she was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. This is something that God did as he opened her heart so that she was receptive to the gospel message. And you say, what was Paul preaching? Well, what do you see him preaching in other places? The message of Jesus Christ and him crucified and, of course, risen. God opens her heart, and when she, verse 15, and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, if you judge me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay, and she prevailed upon us. It says, when she and her household had been baptized. Now, I would encourage you, if you've never studied the baptisms of the book of Acts, that as you study the household baptisms, you're seeing people who heard the gospel, all of them, and responded in faith, all of them, and that's why they were all baptized. Look later in the chapter, at chapter 16, verse 31, we'll start back a verse or so. You know the story of the Philippian jailer and the story of Paul and Silas after they'd been arrested and they're singing and there's an earthquake. The jailer thinks everybody's going to escape. was going to kill himself as a result, but Paul says, don't harm yourself. Verse 29, he called for the lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? He's concerned for his soul. And verse 31, it says, they said, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. 
Notice the word household there. And verse 32, they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. Why is he preaching to the house? Because the house needs to hear the gospel if they're going to come to Christ as well. So Paul gets an opportunity to preach to this one individual, but now he gets to preach to a household and all of them believe. How do we know that? Because in verse 33, it says, he took them that very hour of the night, washed their wounds, and immediately he, that is the jailer, was baptized, he and all his household. And he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. It's a wonderful thing to see one person come to Christ. It's a wonderful thing to see a household come to Christ. And when God works in a church situation like this, and he is using the gospel as it's being proclaimed, people come to faith, and then they're baptized. They don't all come <coughs> like this situation the very same time, but successively as the gospel is preached, children following, listening, hearing, believing the gospel are coming to faith and also being baptized. You see what I'm saying? In other words, here we have a scene where they're all converted in one night. But in the life of the church, it's not always like that. Sometimes it's one and then another and another. But the hope and the prayer is for all of us, especially for those of us with families, that all of our children would come to faith in Christ, that they all will come to profess Christ and know Christ and, yes, give testimony to their faith in Christ in baptism. I trust we're seeing some of that today by God's grace. And we praise the Lord. But what is this passage and what are the other passages pointing to? They're pointing to faith in Christ is what is essential in receiving the gift of salvation. You need to be a believer. But then as a believer, the way that you declare that faith to the world is you receive baptism. You're baptized in Jesus' name. You could go to the baptism of Crispus and the Corinthians in Acts chapter 18. You could go to the baptism of the Ephesian disciples in John chapter, uh, excuse me, Acts chapter 19. You could go to the baptisms that are mentioned in the, in the epistles, but where you see baptism, you see someone who has come to faith in Christ and is making an outward proclamation to those looking on that they have come to Christ, that they believe that Jesus is Lord, they're identifying with him and his people. And ultimately, and the last passage I want to ask you to turn to is Romans chapter 6. Is What does this mean? What's the spiritual meaning of baptism? Romans chapter 6. Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Jesus Christ have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we having been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, 
that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Romans 6, 3, and 4 here indicates that those who've been baptized into Christ are united with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. I had a teacher who once said, there's not a drop of water in Romans chapter 6. Not a drop. If you think there is, then you actually believe something different about baptism. This is about what baptism symbolizes. This is the spiritual reality. Union with Christ is the reality. When a person believes in Christ, they're united with Christ in his death, in his resurrection. Paul even says his burial. United with him in every way. And of course, the New Testament, Paul goes on to explain, we're united with him even in his ascension and in his throne union. We've been united together with him even in the heavenly places. That's how closely you're united to Christ. You have eternal life through him. And that's the picture of baptism. When a person is baptized, they're giving testimony to that union with Christ in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection. That's why I do believe immersion is an accurate picture, because when a person is placed into the water and comes back up, it's like a death and a resurrection. It's a picture of what Jesus did. Certainly, that's the spiritual truth as we think about baptism and this passage, that's the spiritual truth that baptism represents. It's the symbol. Now, we have a number of testimonies that we'll hear today. And as they give testimony to their faith in Christ, I want to encourage you to just listen and uh, rejoice in what God is doing, uh, what God has done 